Welcome to the Substack Podcast, where we interview great writers who have earned their independence. I'm Chris Best. I'm here with Hamish McKenzie and Nathan Bashaw, who talked to someone that's pretty relevant to podcasts in general. Nathan, who did you talk to this week? We talked to the king of podcasts, Nick Kwa. He has a newsletter called Hot Pod that's basically read by everyone in the industry. He's been writing it uh, since 2014 and grown it to like a really large following. If he's the king of podcasts, why is he writing a newsletter? Well, he's the king of um, newsletters about podcasts, I would say, if we want to get technical. He's not <laughs> like Irish <laughs> Yeah. But, I mean, seriously, he is, he is the sort of industry analyst of record, right? So, like, I, if you want to understand what's going on in the podcasting industry, a paid newsletter is a great format to do that. He's, like, kind of the strategy of podcasts in some ways. Um, he also contributes reviews to Vulture, where he, he like, kind of reviews the art form of different podcasts that are coming out. And readers of Neiman Lab, the sort of journalism industry publication, will notice his byline as, as well, because I think they syndicate some of his hot pod stuff uh, there as well. Correct. That sounds fascinating. So what did you guys talk about? Uh, one thing that I thought was interesting is how he kind of grapples with being the podcast guy. Um, we talked about whether we think like a Netflix will podcast will ever emerge, and we talked about how he grew HotPod into like this essential reading for the podcast industry. Sounds really cool. Let's roll the tape. Roll it. Roll. Hey, it's Nathan here. Just a quick note before we jump into this episode. The audio gets a little wonky at some parts. It's definitely listenable, but just wanted you to be aware. Nick Kwa, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? It's good. It's a good day. Um, so, so I want to start by just opening with this. You're you're the most widely read analyst of the podcast industry. You've got you've got the top newsletter on podcasting, and uh, I'm curious, what do you think most people don't understand about podcasting? That it's hard. That it's extremely hard to do well. That it's extremely hard to find something that you will love, and that it's. Um, that is just a, it's a hard, like every other um, sort of scene, it's a hard gig. Yeah. I think there's something about it where it just seems like it's really easy to just sit down in front of a microphone and talk. And then when you start doing it, you realize it's not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I think this isn't particularly new, right? Like, I feel like, um, you know, if you're out in LA, you just bump a bunch of people and be like, you know, I can fucking write a great screenplay or like, I can write a, like, I can write something great. And you sit down and you try to put together a paragraph that works and you just can't. And it's like, and it's, a, you know, I think it's the same. It's just expressed in different forms. It just looks easy. It feels easy because you can literally do it, but doing it well is a whole other matter. Yeah. Yeah. How did you first get into podcasts? What's like your origin story with it? Um, I, so my origin story actually just ties back to when I first got to this country. Um, I moved to the United States from Malaysia in 2008 for college. Um, and where I grew up, there isn't this tradition of public radio and that kind of storytelling, that kind of, you know, narrative audio storytelling. Um, and so once I sort of discovered public radio in my freshman year, um, I just tried to find ways to consume it that didn't have me tethered to a radio. So I would like download MP3s of, you know, episodes of on the media and like Radio Live and stuff like that. And that's sort of my introduction to like, oh, this this interesting piece of technology and this insight into that particular um, sort of radio narrative culture. Um, and then sort of, I kind of just grew my relationship with podcasting from there. I started listening to what the fuck Mark Marin, I started listening to like 
a bunch of weird philosophy podcasts because I was super into philosophy in college, like many young men are. Um, really, things really sort of sort of came to a head, or or like my relationship to it really sort of solidified when I was in graduate school for a year in Chicago, about twenty twelve to twenty thirteen. I was I hated being in graduate school. Um, I just did not know what I was doing myself. I did not do not. I did not know what I was doing with my life. And I would spend a long time every day just walking around the city, and I'd be listening to just a bunch of random shit and a bunch of stuff uh, that's been culling from the iTunes store. Um, and you know, it's sort of it's kind of one of those things that you don't you're not really sure if it's if something saves you until something does, and it kind of like I, I felt much less alone in the city where I felt completely alone in. Who are the podcasts or people that you listen to most in that time? In that time, it was a lot. I was listening to a lot of BBC stuff. I was going through the old This American Life archives, like just plumbing through the very, to the to like the very very deep end of the archives that I could pull from the website. Um, I was tangentially participating in the Chicago comedy scene as a as a huge consumer, and also I was listening to a lot of comedy podcasts. Um, Professor Blastoff was big for me then. WTF remains huge, and was was really really big for me back then. Comedy Bang Bang was huge. Um, it's just it's like a, a collection of a bunch of different things that now seem very much like pillars of the comedy scene, uh, the comedy podcast scene. But back then, just felt like this weird little thing that I found and I was participating in. Why do you think you noticed it? Like a lot of other people weren't listening to podcasts at that time. I don't know. Like I'm I I I'm the kind of person that falls into rabbit holes a lot. Like I like. I like just shit I find in little corners. Um, I, I I don't really know why this particular medium did. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that like, I think I learn better and I receive things better when I'm when I'm told something. Um, and I think I don't know. I I don't trust very much the things that I see, but I trust a lot of the things that I hear. It's just like an emotional <laughs> thing. I want to say. Did you say an emotional thing? Yeah, it's it's just yeah. it feels better. You know, I I read a lot and I read magazines, but like it doesn't it doesn't hit me emotionally as like a really well story told uh, orally or something that is well orchestrated and has like a has a really nice sort of sound and feel to something. Like sounds really just click with me better. It, it's it's I can't quite articulate why. Hmm. What helped you pivot from just like a big consumer of podcasts to focusing a lot of energy on understanding the industry? Um, so this is kind of ties to like just my personal professional history. Um, after I sort of wrapped up my one year in graduate school, um, I moved to New York and I, you know, I was on a sort of work, you know, temporary extension of my work visa. I was just kind of bumping around doing stuff. What brought you to New York? I, I have no idea. I just, you know, my wife, my now wife and the, my then girlfriend, we were just sort of like, let's just go to somewhere and let's like figure out a job or something. And I had some some sort of internship lined up, it's an, like an unpaid in, internship at a tech startup in New York, just to get me into the city. And I was like, I took a bunch of odd jobs to pay the bills and stuff on the side through Craigslist and shit. Um, and... Uh, I, I don't. Yeah, I just went. I just moved to New York, and and among the odd jobs I was sort of pulling to bring cash into the door was freelance writing, and um, and at some point I was able to finagle my way into a job at Business Insider. That's my first ever sort of like media job, um, mm. and 
I knew I was also always interested in writing about business. I'm sort of wired that way. I, my father was a corporate person his whole life, and we just talk a lot about that kind of stuff. And I'm just super interested in just like the culture of business and the, the anthropology of it and like strategy and that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, 2014 happens. Uh, I'm still a business insider, and um, you know, a little show, a show called Serial kind of blew up, and suddenly I saw a lot of people writing about podcasts or this one podcast. Um, and I felt a lot of it was just largely, um, you know, like, oh, isn't this cute? Or isn't that interesting? Or where the hell did this come from? And like having consumed podcasts for quite a number of years by then and had like a very sort of meaningful relationship with the form, I was like, um, you know, and this is this is super interesting writing, but I think I can bring something to the table. And so I just uh, launched a newsletter on the side just so I had a place to write about stuff and think through some some ideas I was having about the space. I remember that. I think I signed up like when you launched. I don't know how I heard about it, but it was. I remember it was right when Serial was happening, and 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 I was starting to think of podcasts as like a cool thing. So you hooked me right off the bat. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> that's good to know. That's a long time yeah. ago now. Like I, it's it's so weird because I felt like I had no fear about it whatsoever. Like I I had no worries that I didn't have any credibility. That like I had no place to to have an opinion like that was that's something that I've always been very sort of worried about like where does the source of my opinions and authority come from where do people trust me um and back then I just wasn't thinking about that kind of stuff I just like had these ideas and I just needed to articulate them and Hmm. somehow what were like were there some initial ideas that you definitely wanted to articulate that pulled you into starting the newsletter I wanted to work through how you turn something that feels so random organically formed into something that becomes a business that you could ostensibly make a living and to expand your creative freedom doing so that was like the sort of the the sort of thing of like something emerging out of nothing um but like what made you care about that that's a really good question because you know i think that the sort of the most essential form of that question is like, why do you do anything? What does anybody <laughs> do anything, right? Um, I honestly don't, like I do it because there's this sort of weird itch that I just need a scratch and I just need to, I just need to go there and, and, and like, I just need to keep doing this. Like I just need to understand the space and try to work for it or represent it. Like, uh, you know, I, I I don't know. I don't know why this space draws me so much. All I do know now that is that like, it feels very much a part of of my identity at this point. Um, that I'm that a lot of the way I, I think is, and a lot of sort of the philosophies that have come to glon on, and the thing that I spend all my time thinking about, has a lot to do with what I'm seeing in this space, and it feels like a crucible or some sort of prism to these larger questions about can you be a person an artist in the world can you be a journalist in the world and and what are the sort of systems and structures that inhibit you from doing that and and allow you to do that better how do you get more freedom that kind of stuff i think i'm so drawn to it because i already have access to this community and this community helps me work through these larger ideas that's that's a little probably why um a lot of it is also just momentum like i've been doing this for a long time and you just keep going and of like you know it's a bit like a marriage sometimes you you come into these phases where you're just going through the motions and you you, you don't have that that sort of initial kind of spark to it but you know if you, you just keep persevering you kind of work on that relationship and you will always find something that's interesting and something new and something fresh 
like I, you know, it's I'm in my almost my fourth year writing this newsletter and covering this space, and I've I've never failed to find a new sort of edge that makes me particularly interested in something. The problem, of course, then it becomes like Hotbot is a pure representation of where I find the edges to be, which isn't necessarily representative of what the community is, you know, in and of itself. And so there's always this really interesting tension there. One thing you said that was really interesting to me is how it's become a part of your identity. How do you feel about that? Um, you know, I don't, I don't have much agitator over it. Like I thought I would. You know, I thought I'd, I'd really hate being like the podcast guy or whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, but you know, it's also I also work hard to like build out other parts of my life, um, and that like, you know, there there's a lot of there are a lot of different parts of me that that I kind of work on in, in different things. I compartmentalize pretty well internally. Like I'm, I, I have a lot of agita over being a recent immigrant and like being from Malaysia, um, and sort of really thinking through about my relationship to my family there and, and what my sort of, what do I owe my country, my home country and, and sort of what, my, what is my responsibility, that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's like a lot of that kind of stuff that I'm working through. I'm also a huge like NBA fan. And so like, they're just, you know, like there's just these different parts of my life that I express myself differently. So I don't, I don't have much agita over, over the fact that like podcasting is a big part of my identity and how a lot of people think about me because I know that to a lot of other people in other parts of my life, like I'm, I'm different things. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just something that I think when people are first starting out, uh, if they, if they want to write about something, uh, it's really painful to kind of limit yourself to a subject, but I think it really helps. I, I, helps I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think that's right because every, I feel like everything, every beat, like every specific like topic, it is not just contained to the thing, right? Like everything is not to sound so fucking woo woo or anything, but like everything is like literally related. If you are a like transportation beat reporter, you're not just writing about transportation. You're writing a lot about like human systems and like the way we live in societies, like that kind of shit. Like every, everything kind of reverberates out into a larger universe. Like it, you know, knowing having a beat is great because like it makes you like a, you know, a knowable identity so that people looking to give you jobs or whatever they know what your deal is right but it doesn't it doesn't contain you philosophically it doesn't sort of contain you you know in terms of of the things that you can intellectually explore so yeah i don't know i, I i'm not so sure i don't i don't quite buy that sort of concern um but i understand it i, I see where it's coming from were there some early moments when you realized that hot pod was working i don't even know if it's working right now <laughs> <laughs> Uh, from where I said it is yeah I mean yeah, I think it's always going to be a thing where like from the outside everything looks a little better and from the inside everything feels a little worse um, I, 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 I have no idea I can't quite remember at particular moments but I do know that like that was a somebody just turned to me once and he asked me like how many subscribers do you have and I think at the time it was like two or three thousand people I'm like, well, it's about two thousand, three thousand people, you know, has already subscribed to it, and they're, you know, a fairly high open rate, et cetera. And then he just kind of says offhandedly, like, that's a real responsibility. And I'm like, oh shit, like, <clears throat> you know, that is a real responsibility. But in the same way that like a high school teacher in a classroom of forty or fifty people is an, is a huge responsibility. Like, I, I, I don't quite have a visceral relationship with the size of my readership. I have a, a visceral relationship with my responsibility as just like an individual in the world. Like I, I don't, 
really sort of I, I don't still believe I still don't believe in any of this like I still don't believe that like um, <laughs> that hard part is anything special it's like you know it's special in the way that all publications are special what is what do you mean when you say responsibility you know we we participate in a society of other people we we when we say opinions out loud it has impact and has effects on people it has effects on one person and effects of it might impact one person might impact a hundred but the fact of the matter is like when you emotionally impact one or two people it means something right like it's already powerful it's a really powerful thing to to be able to do um and at a much larger scale it's just the same shit except like you know your 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 footprint of, of emotional consequence is bigger um and so like to me that doesn't that doesn't feel particularly different the stakes are always as high when if you're talking to five versus you're talking to five thousand like right. I, I feel like i kind of really believe that there's something I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about just your views on like the state of the podcast industry. One thing that is happening a lot now is people are saying that there's going to be some sort of like Netflix for podcast type bundle where people maybe will pay to get access to stuff that they're currently getting for free. What What is your take on that? Um, yeah, I've been thinking about this a bunch and written about this a bunch, um, largely, you know, tethered to the luminary media news. Um, What's Luminary? Luminary is that company. I mean, you know, is that, I mean, I know. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, for 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 the <laughs> listeners, um, it's this uh, relatively new. I mean, I, they they're funded by um, a venture capital firm. I believe it's New Enterprise Associates. Um, and the whole proposi- value proposition there is that they're going to create essentially a premium subscription platform that will that will sent, literally try to be the Netflix Netflix for for podcasting. Like you would go, you would pay. I, I assume you would go, you would pay a monthly um, fee, and so you can access a library of, of shows. And um, you know, word in the street is is they've been knocking on a bunch of doors on uh, sort of publishers that we both know really well, and they're trying to sort of sign deals to get shows uh, on exclusively to the platform. That's just the word in the street. I don't know whether they've changed their strategy. I, I have not met uh, Matt, who's the CEO in person yet. We were supposed to grab coffee at some point, I just haven't been able to do so. Um, and uh, it sort of triggered this conversation about like, all right, podcasting is largely understood to be a free medium, ad supported, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what is the future that we all just end up subscribing to the, a platform and pay X amount of money per month to listen to these things? Or is there is there room for the free stuff, et cetera, et cetera? Is, is, like, is this play going to work out? Um, and, you know, the question is like, I don't see, I, I don't know the future. I, I don't know if it's going to work out. But that, but like, I just have reservations about, not, re- not even reservations. I just don't think it's strategically prudent to pursue a strategy in which you sign premium publishers because the the bet would be you were trying to beat the market in terms of quality every single time or or whatever right. quality, however quality is expressed in the mind of a mass consumer. Yes, most people don't know what a podcast is. Most people, we assume, need an introduction into it and a hand-holding situation. And so the sort of implicit answer or attempted answer here is that we will be that answer to help bring these people into the space if they're willing to pay for it. The question is, how do you get a person willing to pay for a product like this that they're not particularly familiar with? Um, and so I've been sort of exploring a lot of these questions of like, you know, what exactly are the inefficiencies in the podcast ecosystem? And which of these inefficiencies can actually be capitalized upon with a subscription model? And the thing I kept falling back into is it's like, I keep thinking that stuff like Headspace is a really, really, really interesting thing that we should be looking at because, um, 
it sort of fits into your life as a habit. And it does so because it speaks towards an unfulfilled need that's that's able to be managed upon or, or fulfilled through this sort of particular expression of digital technology. Um, yeah, it's like a focused value, pres- value proposition. Right, you look at it, you know exactly what this service will do for you and you know exactly why you you wouldn't pursue a comparable product anywhere else. Um, but then again, you could also you can make arguments either way. Like really, you you could re, you know it's one of those things where the history will eventually be written by the victors, and if somehow Luminary is able to pull this off, either by um, providing a, a a really really good product or perhaps artificially depressing all of his competitors, like you know you could eventually sort of rewrite this analysis backwards. So I it's one of those things where like I I can't even. Like I, I need to see the actual thing first. But in theory, I don't think very much. I don't, I don't put very much stock in like a premium first strategy. Like yeah. it, it's, it's something that I just feel like you're betting on a taste of a person that you have no relationship with. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, that's sort of the way I, I, I'm currently viewing it. But you know, we'll see more data. We'll see m- more when the actual product comes out. We'll see more when the market, when the sort of industry reacts to it. We'll see what the new alliances are. Things can change all the time. Yeah. If that's a shift you're more skeptical of, what shifts do you think are happening but people don't really appreciate or you think will happen? Hmm. I, I don't know. I I don't know what people don't appreciate, what people appreciate. That's fair. <laughs> um, what, so give me an example. What, what, do you, what do you suspect? Like, what are you thinking? Oh, I mean, like, Spotify is one thing. Um... There's there's other companies that might get into podcasting that aren't in it now. Who knows what will happen with Apple down the road? Like I'm just curious, and maybe there's stuff you can't say. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I, I see. I think I see where your question's coming from. Um, it's just I'll say two things. I'm I'm one. Well, I'm always always struck by the earnestness of various platform platforms that I meet. Um, you know, I'm talking to. Apple. I'm talking to Google sometimes. I talk to various of these other sort of platforms, and and I always sort of like, I'm always so stunned by the, what feels like a really interesting gap between how platforms see the problem, how they see their position in the ecosystem, and how the podcast publishers see their role in the ecosystem, the platform's role in the ecosystem, their position, their power, and. I, I I personally have only recently begun to appreciate just the specificity of that gap. Um, yeah, what is the gap? Like, what do publishers think that's wrong? I don't. I don't think what I don't. I'll say that I don't think what they're what publishers are thinking is wrong. I think it's one of those things where it's really hard. It's really really hard to govern an ecosystem. It's really, really hard to have power, and it's especially hard to be like fully equitable in expressing that power. It's a little bit like governments. It's it's a little bit like having and being a celebrity. Like you, you, you see the world in a certain way. You have certain goals and ends to meet. It might not necessarily align with the goals of all aspects of the community, and so you will always sort of be criticized by that aspect of the community by those aspects of the community. Um, and I'm just sort of, I'm always really fascinated by like, what is your, what do you do as a platform in that position? What is your responsibility to these people? 
what is the nature of like what is the what is the future of platforms essentially what what is the sort of um the, the balancing power that needs to go through i'm just i'm like the the thing i can like if i was apple what would i do and if i was apple and i had certain ideals what would i do and i keep running into walls thinking through that direction gotcha like what but i am curious to hear like what what do you think it is that maybe a publisher they're not wrong about it but they're just emphasizing it too much you think basically it sounds like maybe you're saying they're maybe right about some of their criticisms uh which maybe we should give some examples like what are some of the criticisms uh that like a publisher may have of some of these different platforms so one really one example from a couple of years ago i think and it, and it's obviously an ongoing conversation about metrics and, and analytics is sort of when apple you know, decided to roll out the in episode analytics. Um, and there's a push from some places that say like that this is a sort of stepping stone into, um, you know, a world in which we do not want. We do not want a world in which um, we have more sort of specific analytics and measurements because then it, it just, it opens up the door into like uh, a world in which podcast advertising can be super targeted. It's like a slippery slope argument, right? It's, it's kind of the classic thing. Um, and, on the other hand, there's also a push from a different part of the industry. It was like, we want more. We want not, you know, not, we don't want to know like specific identifications of, of listeners, but we want like to know where they are and we want to know what gender they are, demographics, location, stuff. Just more analytics. And if Apple could give, give us a hand with that, that would be great. And sort of that puts Apple in this position where like, who do you, who is it really serving? Is it serving the smaller people or, or is it sort of, serving everybody or is it or is what is this responsibility to help out publishers that want to build real empires on this and it it puts the platform in position of which of its constituencies is it super serving or should it be focusing on or is it in a position where like it should never focus on one and therefore it should just be shat upon by everybody equally as a result but it keeps a level playing field and what does it mean to keep a level playing field and I think that question is one that is really politically powerful and ideologically powerful in this community based on this, its origins as um, like an extension of open publishing and blogging. But, um, but there's, like, there's this sort of inherent tension because a lot of podcasters want to make more money, but the things that they want to get from Apple or other platforms to help them make more money are the very things that could sort of temper down the podcasting ecosystem's original identity as an open publishing ecosystem. So what if you're Apple, what is your responsibility? Like that's a really, really right. difficult place to be in. And it, and it comes down to this question of like, who do you serve at the end of the day? And it's a question that and I guess reflected, I think, in Hotpot all the time. Like, what is the position that I'm arguing and to whom am I arguing for if I am pursuing this argument? And I keep flittering back and forth because I've gone through different phases where like I'm really pro the notion that podcasting industry should become more professionalized, should be able to stand to make more money as a class of people, as a class of creators. But I also have to sort of grapple with the possible inequities and inequalities if the industry professionalizes in certain directions. If only a few major publishers can have access to Spotify's platform to certain analytics solutions. What does that mean for the space and its productivity and the creative and its nature of creativity that I love so much? Like it, it's, it's, um, it's a really, I guess it's a classic question of capitalism, but it's one that's expressed in a somewhat new way here. 
Do you think there's that same tension if there was more of a user paying model or subscription model? Or do you think that's unique to the advertising business, those trade-offs? I think I, the, it, the question of whether it's unique to the advertising business is super interesting, and I don't know. Um, I've been having a lot of conversations about like different ad tech players trying to make their way into the space and enforce different ideals. Um, but I keep coming to the fact of like, if I was a publisher and I wanted to put myself in a position where I can grow reliably year over year, I can pay my bills, pay my employees, save my, for my child's college tuition as a person in the world, um, but I also want to maintain the fact that I can own this business, that I don't need to sell myself off to a bigger company. Um, you know, I think the answer is in diversification of business models on the, on the part of publishers. I think pa- the behavior and the policies of platforms was only one aspect of my decision making if I was to pursue a diversified business model. Um, and, you know, it also when you kind of view it from that lens, like, really doesn't matter what platforms do at the end if you are trying to sort of play different games and if you're trying to spread your risk around in a bunch of different directions but not everybody has the opportunity to do that not everybody has the opportunity to get into a position where they can actually begin to diversify the business models um, effectively and so it's a it's an endless back and forth in that question who's doing it well diversifying i think radiotopia is doing this doing it pretty well um it's one of those things where um that you know you might not make a ton of money immediately but you know have you ever read that book or heard about the sort of notion of uh, finite games versus infinite games um no i forgot what the actual book is uh, what the title is but essentially this is essentially a philosophy treatise almost where this guy extends that there are basically two ways of thinking about um you know games right and he's using games as a metaphor as like also a metaphor for like businesses or politics or states and nation states and stuff. One way of being in a world is that you're always looking to achieve something. And, and the, the goal is to like reach an end. And the other way of approaching the world is playing an infinite game where the point of the game is to keep playing. And so I, you know, I think Radiotopia with its various experimentations in crowd support, um, in you know, very thoughtful advertising, in live events, in merchandising, and like sort of spreading themselves out in a bunch of different direction, they're they're putting themselves in a better position where they can keep doing what they do. It's it may not necessarily lead to a big empire. It may, it may not necessarily lead to the next like, you know, NPR or, or CBS or whatever. But they get to keep doing what they keep they get to keep doing. And as far as I'm concerned, that is the a very very agreeable and and very very like aspirational place to be in. Yeah, it's interesting. It reminds me of almost like the magazine model, or if it's like a high-end magazine, like Harper's or something. Like Harper's has always known it's not trying to be some like giant business, right? Like it's just trying to keep being Harper's basically. Um, And I think there are certain kinds of business models, certain kinds of businesses that the natural state of things is to just grow and to have this enormous power, like if, like platforms, probably that's the case for most of them. It's either sort of all or nothing. But then uh, it sounds like you're, you're, you're making an argument for podcast networks as uh, magazines, maybe? Would that be one way to put it? Um, I mean, not necessarily. Like, I, I feel like podcast networks, podcast publishers, podcast companies should just try to be as many things as they can. They should try to experiment in different ways, pull from different models, uh, take different inspirations from different industries. I don't just want to see any this one model proliferate because I just feel like that's lazy thinking as far as a class of innovation goes. But um, 
I I will say that like I'm I'm interested to see the many other different kinds of <laughs> business models that that will come up. Um, that's not just advertising driven, right? And and I feel like I just don't see that much innovation. I think there I think there's a race to look like everywhere else right now, and it kind of bums me out. What what is the what is it the what are people racing towards like it, to look like everyone else? Like what's the model that people are racing towards? That's homogeneous, homogeneous, <laughs> hum, hum, homogeneous. It's homogeneous. There, there we yeah, go. Yeah. That's uh, what I mean. right. yeah. Um, it's like uh, you know the model of like signing celebrities to uh, create shows that are you know relatively low risk because they bring in their respective um, uh, fan bases already and will generate numbers that are good in podcasting but sort of bad everywhere else and, and you know and that kind of stuff is because you're particularly primarily driven by certain you know advertising needs or or, or engagement metrics and stuff like that like it's just like I think. As a class, there's a certain class of podcast industry companies that are trying to make this look like cleaner digital radio, um, and or cleaner digital media, and it's just it's just really just kind of boring to me um, because it allows for only certain kinds of programming that I personally did not get into this game to to get more of. Um, so I mean I'll just keep it at that without sort of uh, going specific to names because uh, sure, yeah. I haven't really sort of fully fleshed out how I what my the actual source of my criticism is. It's right now it's just purely emotional, um, and I'm trying to sort of figure out like is there a good version of this push to look like everywhere else? Is there like the whole notion that we're eventually going to get programmatic in podcasting? Like I know for a fact that 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 is correct. Like all things considered enough intention and money goes into the space, you'll see some of these kinds of ideas be recycled and brought into it. Um, the question is like... Programmatic advertising, like targeting users based on what they've listened to in the past. More like more like automatic buys, automatic buys and sells in an automated marketplace. Um, and therefore gotcha. like podcast advertising executions that are not as interesting or organic or baked in or meaningful or thoughtful. That kind of shit. Um, gotcha. It's like the banner adification of podcasts. Right, right. Or the commodification of the ad, right? Like... Right. You know, it's going to come in the same way that anything that gets some modicum of success comes with it a certain kind of, comes with it certain kind of edges, a certain kinds of, uh, of incentives. Um, you know, and, and it's just sort of the nature of, of the way things progress. There's a, there's a, there's a thing I've been feeling now, not about media, but like about cities in America where I, there are a couple of small to mid-sized cities that I absolutely love. I absolutely, absolutely love a bunch of cities in the middle of this country. And to a T, all of them are getting a little bit more popular, a little bit more famous. And I just sort of see the changes and, and the sort of things that comes with being a little bit more popular. Uh, and it's changing to those cities into things that I, I, I just like, I do, not, I do not quite enjoy. But I also understand that this is a reactionary feeling, you know, people come and people have the freedom to interact with other parts of an existing community. Um, it's just like, how does a community sort of defend itself and, and sort of maintain or preserve its core? You know, these are all related questions. Yeah. One thing I also, to kind of switch gears a little bit, I wanted to ask you about maybe some of the tension between learning things and being, being sort of friends with a lot of the people in the industry and speaking honestly with your views where like, you know, you said you might get coffee with the luminary guy. You also said you're skeptical. How do you, how do you do that? 
uh, well, I don't, I don't see them as friends. Uh, you know, like maybe one, maybe one or two are like are, are friends because I knew them before um, or something like that. But it's like, um, I have a job. This is a job. And part of the job is to meet people and to develop relationships with them and to treat them fairly and to think about the things that they do and to try to read them fairly and accurately and present it back to them in the world in a public fashion. Um, and so part of you kind of understand a person without trying to without actually sitting down and trying to understand them. And when you sit down and understand them, there's a you know it's a connection that could feel like friendship. But um, but you know it's sort of it's sort of the delicate line and it's sort of like a, a, an ethically oriented thing where um, if I do think that somebody's doing something that I disagree with or I don't think is going to work, uh, it's intellectually honest and it's part of my job to say it out loud. Um, and if the relationship or between myself and the source is of a mutual respect, that will come with respect. Um, the and it would be sort of. <laughs> me criticizing that person won't do much uh, material damage to uh, the actual conversations that we have off the news. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And then I- I'm also curious to hear about like when you first started writing Hot Pod, it was a free newsletter. And at some point you introduced paying members. Yeah. Why did you do that? Because uh, I didn't want to work for um, another company anymore. So the the background here is that I started news- the Hot Pod when I was working at Business Insider and then I shifted between a couple of jobs while I was writing Hotbot for free that wasn't directly podcast related. And then at some point, um, I got a job at Panoply because I was just personally interested in like knowing how it felt like working inside a podcast company. Right, Panoply is, I guess they used to be attached to Slate, but not anymore. But they're, yeah, they're what are some of their bigger podcasts? They're sister companies to, to Slate now. They're, they're biggest, their biggest podcasts include like Revisionist History and um, uh, and like they do a bunch of sort of third party production for a bunch of different magazines and publications. Like they sell ads for like political podcasts and stuff like that as well. Gotcha. So you were working there? Yeah, I was working there um, back, at, I believe, 2016, early 2016, like 2015, around that era. Um, and I, you know, I just, because like, I didn't quite know what Hotbot was, like I didn't, I didn't sort of, I still don't see myself as a journalist, but, uh, at the time, like I was just, the news that it was just a side project, it was a blog that I just had ideas and put stuff out in. Um, but as I sort of continue working in Panoply, I started thinking about like the things that I did not understand as an outside outsider with Hotbot and there are there are sort of there's a way in which the world looks differently when you're inside a company versus when you're viewing it outside, and part of your experiences inside a company is true, and part of your experiences is the narrative that you tell yourself. And this is true for everything and anything, but at some point, I just hit a point where like I think I just want to be an outsider. Like I think I just want to see where the hot button goes, and I kind of want to keep analyzing this um, as a third party. And so uh, I feel like in order to get more independence, I just needed to build a business model for the newsletter and I decided to go with um, sort of initially sort of like a public radio style you like this shit just toss in a couple of bucks after, like every month after you've consumed it most of this will be free I'll toss in some random shit for, the, for you as an exclusive but it's nothing particularly meaningful um, and that afforded me the ability to sort of start um, it wasn't like I, I was I had to do like a bunch of other sort of side gigs as well I took up a lot of my freelance stuff on the side back again to keep paying the bills, but Hotbot has been steadily growing ever since. 
Um, and I eventually introduced a classified section and that was helpful. And uh, about a couple of months or about a year into it, um, New York Magazine, Magazine came in and asked me if I wanted to be a contributor for them to cover podcasts. And so um, I took these various sort of revenue streams to help support the business. Um, but yeah, that's a, essentially the, the, <laughs> the TLDR here is that like I just wanted freedom. I just wanted right. to, to be on my own. And you, you said you started out by having it just be almost like a donation, like kind of Patreon type thing. But then, but now it's, you've got Hot Pod Pro where it's like, there's more behind it, right? Yeah. I mean, I relaunched it. I mean, I, I fucked around with like the, the pre quote unquote premium site a lot. It was initially called the thing. Cause I was just being an asshole about it. And then I called it <laughs> Hot Pod Pro and then I called it Hot Pod Extra. And then a couple of weeks ago I had another relaunch and I'm, I renamed it Hot Pod Insider. Um, and I think this one's gonna, <laughs> I think this one's gonna stick this time. Um, and uh, the whole idea is that I think I'm putting into place a plan to try to take a hot pot to the next level, which is can I build it into something that's independent from me? Um, and that, you know, I won't say too much more at this point because I don't have my ducks in a row yet. But sure, the the idea here is to scale it very, very modestly, um, just so that I can cover. I can put Pompa in a position to cover the things that I previously could not cover effectively and to achieve some economies of scale because really what you get in Hotbot is is exactly of how much effort I put into it. And so it can't do more beyond me cloning myself. Uh, and so I'm trying to sort of figure out a way to to bring in more people um, that feel in a way that feels equitable and that feel that in a way that feels right. Um, so we'll see where that goes. How'd you decide what to put behind the paywall and what to put in front of the paywall? Uh, it's always been a mix because for the longest time, my philosophy has always been everybody from the CEO of a venture-backed podcast company should be reading the exact same thing that um, independent producers uh, are, who are scraping cash by are, are reading. Um, because like, you know, I think a lot about sort of the inequalities of information and the, the death of local newspapers suggest that like we're, we're losing this capacity for everybody to read the same thing and if everybody read the same thing you know different the people who have the capacity to pay will get more edges would get more capacity to become more powerful and and to the detriment of people who are not able to pay or not willing to pay so that was the initial sort of thesis there um and i think uh, i'm shifting it to be a bit more specific with the stuff behind the paywall now like the stuff behind the paywall are, are going to be chiefly follow-ups or sort of longer form writing that I couldn't put in a newsletter specifically because the the variety cannot hold. Just the way to structure the Tuesday newsletter is it just cannot hold certain lengths. Um, and I, and I kind of want to open up a space where I can do a bunch of really weird, interesting, and more substantial stuff. What does that mean, like, more substantial? Like, besides just the length, like, is it would be covering topics in a different way? or Yeah, sometimes I just want to go down rabbit holes, um, and sometimes I want to explore ideas, per, like, in a way that's a little bit idiosyncratic, and I don't feel comfortable putting it out publicly in front of a, a free paywall where it can be shared and it can travel with, um, you know, with little with little sort of context attached to it. Mm. Um, and so the way that I've been sort of thinking about insiders is that not like on the one hand it will also always sort of scratch this itch of like you know stuff that happened on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday 
if people decided to drop a press release after Tuesday news pod pods go out, I have a place to catch it and throw it to people who who really care and and who would pay seven dollars a month to re- to know that kind of stuff on the day itself or the day after. But the other side would be like you know I want to at some point I really want to go along into what people think about production flows and maybe produce like a three or four thousand word piece on that. And I don't want to give the whole thing to the Tuesday Hapa newsletter because it has to carry all these other stories as well. It has to sort of hit you in a bunch of different ways. Um, and like, you know, I would rather give that to people who, who are super nerdy and about podcasting and have expressed that nerdiness by paying $7 a month. Yeah, totally. What like... I'm curious to hear how you think about the different topics. Like, do you have to cover each Tuesday, like the main things or how do you, how do you even like kind of gather the news and decide what to put in? A lot of it is feel. Um, I, one thing that I try not to be is that I, I, I hate being jerked around, right? I, I hate when I don't control my pace because I feel like you seed something to the narrative there. And so with every newsletter, I try to bring into something that is completely 30,000 feet. Yeah, sure, you announced that new show. Yeah, sure, this new company stepped into the open. But um, it shouldn't be like the totality of the conversation that week. And so I try, mm. to, I try to cut every Tuesday newsletter into a bunch of different ways to serve a bunch of different communities. But it, and it, and it, in a way that's like not particularly news hooky. If that makes any sense, so that's the only thing right. I sort of like don't really try to do very much of. I'm not scoopy. Gotcha. Another thing is that I'm not scoopy, because I think there's limited value where we are right now as a community in scoopy stuff. And I think I'm also not built for that kind of thing. Like I'm just you know the newsletter drops when it drops, um, and also like just because something happened and I got there first um, doesn't mean much. It's, it's like there's not a ton of of value in that for most of my readers. And this isn't like a this isn't the Wall Street Journal like this isn't a people day trading so like a, a thirty percent a thirty second difference in you knowing something isn't doesn't particularly I don't find that particularly valuable I find analysis valuable I, I find the questions of yeah this happened what does it mean what is it what are the other things that have happened in the past six months that are related to this what should you be thinking of when you when you see this what are the questions you should be asking how can you be more thoughtful how can you be a better person that kind of shit yeah. Totally. Well, I'm a huge fan of it. I love reading it. Um, and thank you for doing it. And thank you for coming on this podcast. Yeah. Um, this was fun. How can, yeah. How, how can people find you, uh, online? Um, hotpotnews.com uh, is the website and, uh, I'm on Twitter and is my handle. Um, and it's the picture of the Kermit the Frog. Yeah. That's, that's one of those ones. You know how you have the people in Twitter where you see the avatar and you stop, you're like, I got to read that. Like that's, the Kermit for me. Yeah, a lot of people tell me that they've seen other Kermits and they mistake that I am them. And it's like, it's a kind of a weird, it's a small crew of Kermit people on Twitter, I think. <laughs> Should start a group. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's been great to chat. Cool. Thank you. Good luck with everything, man. All right. That was episode three of the Substack podcast with Nick Kwa. Hope you liked it. Also, apologies for the little audio walkiness, both at the beginning and now, as I am recording this from a co-working space and not a real microphone, but I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please share, uh, rate, and review us on iTunes, and uh, stay tuned next week, Thursday, 